last one of 2021. We're, we're here at the end of another calendar it year. It does not even feel right. Feeling, 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 it doesn't feel right. Tell me more. Say more. It, it doesn't seem like 2021 has been here yet. <laughs> <laughs> you said this is just the extended 2020. Yeah, this is like the 384th of December 2020. And it doesn't really help that we're going into 2022. It's like 2020 part two. Anyway, right. we're going we're, we're gonna to keep the energy positive. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Yeah. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Um, we're going to get started this week uh, with a downbeat. It's every week. It seems like it's another rest in peace to to someone. But I feel like uh, I would be remiss. We would be remiss if we didn't give it up for the now late Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Just uh, an an incredible uh, being, a historic person. So many connections with music. I, I've I've been seeing all over my timeline different musicians, including my teacher. Shout out to Lacoli in Washington, who had the opportunity to meet. Desmond Tutu, just nice. really, really incredible person. I don't, I don't know if you uh, have any special connections or or stories or ideas on Desmond Tutu. I, I just, um, you know, I, I remember how influential and impactful he was as a human being. That I remember, and you know, the band U two was mm-hmm. heavily involved in um, Artists Against Apartheid, and so okay. they referenced Tutu in their recordings here and there. And yeah. Also in the film Rattle and Hum, I think his name came up in that. Okay. All right. Well, uh, in in uh, as a, as a means of honoring the late Desmond Tutu, I thought we would uh, do a, a downbeat this week for this final opus of 2021 uh, that comes from a, an interview of his. I listened to a lot of his audio clips and interviews today, and this one uh, struck a chord with me. And I'll, I'll, I'll say more, but let's take a listen first. What do you actually do when you forgive someone? Well, basically, you're saying I am abandoning my right to revenge, to pay back. I, I mean, I have, I, by the fact that you have abused me, you have hurt me, or whatever it is that you have done, you have wronged me, by that you have given me a certain right, as it were, over you, that I could refuse to forgive you. I could say I have the right to retribution. When I forgive, I say I jettison that right and I open the door of opportunity to you to make a new beginning. That is what I do when I forgive you. You know, and and the reason that that really struck a chord with me is because as we move into the new year, I've been thinking a lot how I can up my work and be even more impactful by means of uh, community building, class solidarity, those sorts of things. Um, But in all of those things, in all of that work, I, I can't help but to think about uh, the the retribution, if I want to use that word, that folks like me in the arts is looking for from arts institutions. Mm. It's hard to think about forgiving orchestras who uh, plat- platform music and program the way that they have for over a century, how, you know, the, the historical narrative is still there very much in the way that 
arts institutions work and move today. And it's hard for me to think about forgiveness when I think about those things. And then, of course, we can throw words like equity into the mix. And and what does that look like when it comes to um, giving someone else an opportunity for a new beginning, as Desmond Tutu says here? Anyway, all of those things run through my mind uh, when I when I hear those words from Desmond Tutu. I wonder what um, your ideas are, or maybe your experiences are with forgiveness, maybe even just generally. Has forgiveness been this magical, I am um, absolving myself of pain or or whatever words and languages we put around, you know, not holding the grudge and deciding to forgive? Well, mm. what, what are your ideas or it is, experiences there? It is so funny that you bring that up, how this is going to tie into my music in the second movement, okay. but we'll get there. Um, I used to hold a grudge like you would not believe, and I'm trying to still rehabilitating myself. Um, and I used to be slow to forgive. Mm -hmm. And shout out to my friend Doug. Um, there was an instance where uh, I thought he treated me really poorly. He was my best friend. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wanted, ended up going into treatment for alcohol use disorder. And when he came back out, he reached out. And I thought, you know, if I messed up, I would want somebody to try to give me another shot. Yeah. And so when we started getting reacquainted again, he wanted to start explaining what happened. And I said, that, 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 enough for that. I haven't spoken to you in six years. So let's, you know, work on that. So that was ages ago. But now, <clears throat> now that he's in my life again, I realized that I was punishing myself mm -hmm. by not extending a hand and giving him another, opening the door for a new relationship, which is what we have now. And I'm, and I'm very grateful for that. It sounds like such a, uh, a right thing to say or a right way to think about it, you know, punishing yourself when you hold on to grudges and when you don't forgive, but yeah. that, that stuff is real. That that's really real. I have, uh, um, next, next to my, um, my altar, my Buddhist altar over there, you know, I have all of my determinations written down and one of them deals with, allowing myself to forgive the folks who allowed me <laughs> to be in the position that I am now, you know, one of, one of my big things, um, you know, turning that pain, you know, and, you know, all of the negative feelings of those grudges into something more positive. You know, I'm grateful for the year that I have had not having a boss working independently as an entrepreneur, doing my own thing, having the time to um, take on different activist ventures and, uh, and, and engage different communities and different individuals. So, you know, if I had to go back, I wouldn't do a thing differently. That doesn't mean that those feelings haven't been there all along. Of course not. And, right. you know, so when, when I think about, you know, this idea of forgiveness and these ideas of redemption, that's something that I'm going to really be focused on as we talk about New Year's resolutions and, and all of those things, how to really um, not only turn the negative feelings into something positive, but digging as deep as I can within myself to actually do something about the seeds, the, the, the tiny little seeds of anger or frustration that pop out 
every now and again. I mean, I, I've, I've often uh, compared uh, my situation to uh, with my former employer like a breakup. You know, some breakups, romantic right. uh, relationships, the breakup is so bad that even years later, there's still a little bit of a, a oh, feeling yeah. there. You know? oh, so yeah. that, that that's where I am. But when I listen to Desmond too, to speak of forgiveness, you know, uh, and just allowing others to, um, to, to have a new start. I, I'm inspired by that. And I think I can get a little bit closer, even when I back up from the picture away from my own uh, personal situation. But again, the general larger ideas of equity, decolonizing the arts, transforming art spaces. In what way, what role does forgiveness play in that Part of the conversation. Do you, mm. do you do you think that you know we activists on the ground and inside some of the institutions? Do do you think there's some forgiving that we need to do of these arts institutions? Is that is that anywhere in this cake mix for you? Did an apology come through first? Mm. See, that's that's a part of it. That's a very important part of it. Uh, because are, I'm, I'm not going to show my hand first. Well, okay? are, I haven't worked myself to and, that. And point. I think that's interesting because our arts institutions apologizing. I talked last weekend, last week about going to uh, the Minnesota Orchestra Christmas Pops and mm -hmm. how out front, I think I mentioned it while we were recording out front, they have this big poster, this Black Lives Matter theme poster that talks about, you know, we haven't done nearly enough and da da da, blah, blah, blah. So are those acknowledgments? ones that should be taken as apologies uh, you know maybe maybe i could think about it that way or people can think about it that way i think that whatever they're trying to achieve will be easier after an apology mm -hmm. i think that they will reach that goal and be taken more seriously by the people that they're trying to reach if an apology comes first yeah yeah so does it just look like orchestras uh well, opera no, houses and stuff just saying hey guys we're sorry. <laughs> you know, what does that apology look like? Yeah, that's I, you know, I'm, toward I'm not these sure. renewed relationships. Yeah, I think it's going to be different for everybody because, you know, in Kansas City, there was that newspaper that came out and said, hey, we've we've been doing this wrong for a couple decades now. And mm -hmm. here and here's how and here's the steps that we're going to take to fix it. Yeah. You know, so that's right for them. I, that's a great question. I don't know what it would be. I like. mean, but there's some power in that naming what was done wrong. It's one thing to that's say, true. oh, we seek to do better. That's true. No, we, we're not going to gaslight y'all. This, this is what you're complaining about, or this is what we see. And these are the things that we have done wrong. Anyway, all of these thoughts, we, we can spend a long time here, but all of these thoughts circle my mind as I listened uh, to that Desmond Tutu interview. So I just mm -hmm. wanted to make sure um, I brought that into uh, uh, to honor the late Archbishop and to uh, to get us all thinking about what forgiveness and redemption looks like as we move forward into the new year. I, if, you know, if, if folks don't hear anything else I say this opus, I've been thinking about, again, the, the class solidarity that so many activists in and outside of music have put forward decades past. You know, I'm thinking about uh, Fred Hampton, Judas and the Black Messiah. I think that was this year. I think that was 2021. It's been a long year, but we were talking about that music and, yeah. you know, that, that stuff on Triloquy, you know, and how uh, he as a civil rights activist realized that he could get more done if he figured out how to reach beyond those color lines towards the same goal. So, you know, don't get it twisted. You have the um, folks with the Confederate flags, you had the Black Panthers, and you had everybody in between at these rallies alleys using words like pig and and those things talking about the police you know right, so it's right. it's not just a kumbaya there is still an opposition but uh rallying people around 
you know, our 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 joint, our shared opposition, our shared oppressor. Mm. So, you know, when I think about that and bringing folks together and look, there's their class conversations that we need to start to have. Where does forgiveness fit into that? Do I need to, as a black man, forgive the police as an institution? You know, when so many things are still going on, we won't even acknowledge the ties that the police institutions have with slavery and slave catching and that being the reason why so many uh, of these structures were built, you know, so redemption and forgiveness as a part of that conversation is really something that I'm going to push and challenge myself toward. Not that, you know, I hope no one hears me saying I'm forgiven the orchestras, I'm forgiven the uh, police officers, you know, every, everything is good. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is toward equity, toward decolonization, toward transforming art spaces. I'm trying to figure out what it would look like for me to get beyond just the feelings and to get into, you know, a, a, a road forward. Now, I don't believe in the respectability, you know, that goes into a lot of these things. You know, we have to act right and play by their rules to get on the inside to do change on their terms, on on their uh, uh I don't know what word I'm looking for, but but slow terms, you know, uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, means that aren't fast enough. So I'm, right. I don't believe in any of that. I definitely believe that there's urgency and and uh, a pressing nature that has to be put into the work. But I do think it's worth it, at least for me, if I can only speak to, uh, for myself, it's worth it to think about what some sort of reconciliation and renewed relationship with these institutions, what that would look like. Now, of course, through all of that, you know, I still have to talk my shit here on this podcast because <laughs> that's what ahead. it's for. So we're going to get to it. Last one of the year. Here we go. Triloquy Opus 131. Thank you very much to the new listeners. Damn. This is a podcast where we take the phrase classical music and we throw conversation and musical aesthetics into that phrase as a means of decolonizing that phrase. We're going to, you know, Scott, in the second movement today, we're going to get back to some of the basics and talk about what that means for us, mm -hmm. you know, transforming and decolonizing the very phrase. So that's what this podcast is built to do, to just challenge the status quo of classical music all the way toward affirming more classic musics, classical musics here in the United States and around the world as such. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, be sure to visit triloquy.org you can also find out how you can donate there to the returning listeners thank you as always for keeping us there keeping us relevant and keeping this project going we couldn't do this without you in addition to your support support for the triloquy podcast comes from the shuttleworth foundation from the springboard for the arts here in saint paul and this week also i have to give a shout out to the mcphail center for music scott i went and recorded the um all state excerpts for the kids so you know i'm I'm reading my acts. Uh, I'm checking my accidentals and checking them twice. <laughs> uh, you know, the, Very so good. it was, you know, so it was cool being in their recording space, getting my bassoon out and, you know, just really, you know, playing as so-called perfectly as I can. You know, I can't push 
musicians, especially young musicians, toward the aspiration of playing in orchestras as they exist now, because I just don't believe in that. And there's so much we have to change before I could get a, a child, especially a child of color, trying to aspire to something like that. And learning to play an instrument very well is a really great skill and one that does not have to be aligned with that sort of track, not even as a bassoon player. Mm. You know, they're, they're <laughs> anyway, I, I can get into the different ways bassoon can be right. applied, but you know, all of that to say huge shout out and thank you to the McPhail Center for Music for having a troublemaker like me in, in the room playing bassoon for y'all. I really appreciate Way it. Way to go. <laughs> all right, thank you everyone. Let's get into movement one. All right, Scott, so we're recording this after Christmas. Today is December 27th, but there's still one, a, a couple, but one quick holiday thing that I needed to throw in. We're going to get started this week with a really quick flat. I heard this news. I saw the news on Twitter, just straight up scrolling Twitter. But I did find that someone wrote uh, an article about it. And I'm reading from the MarySue.com headline. Cops continue to misunderstand the entire point of how the Grinch stole Christmas. Let me read a little bit. CBS News tweeted out a video Friday showing police officers arresting a person dressed as the Grinch during a tree lighting celebration in Texas. This sort of ostensibly silly copaganda skit <laughs> is entirely common. Police departments regularly use these sorts of characters to present a softer image of themselves and their institutions to communities, specifically to children. Now, obviously, this writer has some feelings. We aren't looking <laughs> yeah. at something completely um, object objective, but even so, I think it's really interesting because, remind me, now, you were there. I've, I've seen the animated Grinch film, I think, twice. I've said all the way through it. Okay, you were there when they were putting it on TV. We're talk we spent the downbeat talking about redemption and forgiveness. What in the hell is the Grinch about? Please remind us. Please remind us. <laughs> Did the Grinch steal Christmas and go on about his business and now he's an outlaw? Or did something else happen? Something else happened. What was that? Well, his heart grew three sizes plus two. Right? Okay. Oh, I'll say you're trying to uh, uh, re recite the ancient text. It's okay. <laughs> but anyway, yes. He realized what he did, and he went back and fixed it, didn't he? Okay. Well, also, to her credit, Cindy Lou Who did not call 911 either. Sure, exactly, because she... Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep myself as neutral and as calm here, <laughs> just getting started. The point is, this is a children's story about some mean old Grinch, how his feelings about Christmas ended up being misguided. He saw that for the people, is it, is it the Whoville? I, I don't know. Yeah. But okay, it is. You got okay. It. Yep. So for them, they realized that that's not really what the Christmas spirit is about next Y and Z. So he realized his wrong and fixed it and became a part of their community. He was redeemed, you know, a, a, as it were. So the police at least down here in Texas and what I've seen on uh, Twitter don't understand that concept and think that kids need to be taught that the Grinch needs to go to jail and we are the good guys. Yeah. If he goes to jail, then nobody gets their presents back. So I know again, as I just said, this article that I'm reading from, it is, it is not neutral. Do you think it's unfair to critique and to really take a second look at the ethos behind these sorts of activities, performatively arresting the Grinch and taking him to jail as a means to teach children what? 
that would be the no i i can't i don't see any value in it i'm sorry so is well, that what you're asking me yeah, what's the yeah, point of exactly, it exactly exactly and we know the point of it the point is to teach kids you know again like i said oh we're the police we're the good guys and xyz and this is the bad guy maybe maybe i i don't feel like i would have a leg to stand on if they took an actual villain from some children's movie to jail but the point of that film yeah. is exactly what I've been thinking about redemption, forgiveness, and what that actually looks like. The people of Whoville did not, as a collective, you know, banish him or X, Y, and Z. You know, after he realized his wrong, did his version of an apology and his version of recompense. Because, again, he didn't just say sorry. He brought back the gifts and decorated and, and whatever happened in the cartoon. Okay. So that, that is, I'm getting lost in my thoughts, but that, that is the point. And by framing it any other way, there's some just violent uh, narratives that are being passed down. And it's one thing It's very easy to, to see situations like these as not a big deal. And, oh, they're just having fun down there in Texas, but there are systems that are being fortified that, and, and people are thinking about this. The folks down there in Texas aren't dumb. You know, the folks who make the decisions to, to do these things, they understand what they're doing. And I feel like we need to more actively pinpoint and understand where these things are happening so that we can understand why, you know, uh, we, we have the police challenges that we do today when it comes to the uh, automatic uh, respect and, and blind submission that we're supposed to put on police officers and all those sorts of things. It has to be named, and I couldn't record this this last opus of the year without saying something about this. So in the spirit of redemption and the spirit of fixing it, you already sort of alluded to not objecting to the police hauling off a kid's character mm -hmm. that was an actual villain. Right. Okay, so... I'm putting you on the spot. Who would you not object to seeing getting hauled off from a kid's story right now? A ab absolutely no one. And I'm not just saying that to be performative, but we have to we have to train kids like that movie did, like the Grinch did, that there is a road to redemption. It's not just about taking someone and putting them in a cage and throwing them away and being okay with that and normalizing that all the way to the point to teaching that to kids. We have to get into finding ways to teach kids what redemption looks like and what the road ahead looks like after redemption so you know my answer to your to your question is none you know uh, well you were ahead. the one that suggested it first that's why i asked yeah and you know me and uh me and dill these past couple of weeks you know we've been uh watching uh this this television show reruns of it this a and e show where they take undercover people and throw them in jail just so they can see what the jail experiences right. are like and all this um of the first season of the show that we completed one of the women who went in was a police officer a police officer for 21 years and she was one of my least favorite people on the whole show but i appreciated her character because at the end of it after spending two months in jail, she decided that she had to retire being a police officer because she couldn't be the one throwing those people into those conditions. Right, right. So, you know, and I think that speaks to how we have normalized, again, throwing people away out of sight, out of mind. We don't think about the harsh conditions that people are under when they get locked up for mm -hmm. doing things like selling drugs. I'm not talking about violent offenders. I'm talking about people who have sold drugs or didn't pay a parking ticket or like me, talk a little smart to the judge and, and she put down the hammer and said okay straight to jail uh, <laughs> anyway there there are some harsh conditions there and we aren't thinking about that again when we just performatively take the Grinch or a character like the Grinch throw him away because he's the villain and now we get to live our happy lives so again I needed to make sure that I threw a flat down there I'm on record for 
not being very pro police on this podcast. And this is one of the reasons why. So if you're upset about that, this is why go talk to your local, uh, police commissioner or a police sergeant, whoever is in charge of those things and bring things like this up. This is unacceptable. And we cannot normalize this sort of thing, especially for children. I was so disturbed when I saw that, but they were tearing them up on Twitter. Like the, the, the police station or whoever that <laughs> that posted this story, like to say, look what we did. We And they had the Grinch in a cage. And I think he was a part of the uh, parade or something. Right. Boy, they tore him up so bad on Twitter. He had to turn the replies off and see, this is the thing. I would guess we're going to so. get, we're going to get into, we're going to talk a little bit about the matrix and the trilogy this week and, and the swarm and all those sorts of things. In so many ways, you know, that's, swarm can be so bad especially when you talk about uh cancel culture as, as we've seen in many ways but this is the the sort of swarm that i like to see i love to see it because it makes me feel like i'm not out here by myself and i'm not crazy you know so then <laughs> that whole thing with the thick grinch you know that's not as near as problematic now well you know i don't i don't know where that came from but they were sure uh sharing the grinch with his cheeks out anyway the thick, the thick grinch shout out to um you know, all of the people who, of Whoville, of Whoville. Yes. Amen. All of the uh, Grinches who have been redeemed and dark shout out to the police officers. Y'all need to do better. This ain't it. I want to transition out of this first um, accidental by, uh, oh, I meant to talk about speaker geekers. We'll, we'll, we'll get there right after I play this. Um, uh, Tyler, the creator flipped uh, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. So, you know, cool. we're still technically in the holiday season. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this to transition to our next accidental. because I was still thinking about the Speaker Geekers feature from last year. Actually, what I wanted to start with um, this week, we'll, we'll, we'll do this really quickly. Um, Steve-O and Tommy from Speaker Geekers, if you didn't uh, catch their feature last week, uh, go listen to that. When they talk about engaging audiences that don't typically get engaged or get centered, excuse me, by classical institutions, how do we do that? What is that road ahead? You know, what does that redemption look like? You know, basically what they said quite plainly is these arts institutions have to platform things that we want to listen to, mm -hmm. that we want to hear, that we that that isn't connected to education or broaden your perspective or the no something we like right now okay so we can pay for all of the focus groups all of the research we can hire the ambassadors as you said but that is that is the answer through all of that work i will be, i believe you'll get the same answer you have to put something on that we want you have to get us in the building and then we can grow and and uh and branch off from there that can be our jumping off point so Understanding that bit of data, again, mm -hmm. data that so many of these folks will pay and do everything they can to get, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. understanding that. What do you think is the road ahead, at least when it comes to classical programming on the radio? I know that very few, not all, 
you know, I won't say all because there there have been exceptions, but most of the radio stations will not put on your Drake, your Beyonce, your Tyler, the creator, as we just heard. You know, we, mm-hmm. we understand that reality, understanding that reality and understanding, you know, the information that we're getting from folks in that community. What do you think the 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 road ahead is? What do you think is our, our steps one, maybe even step two? Um, you remember when we were talking in Opus 67 with Todd Steed, is it your former boss sure. from UOT? Yep, yep. Shout out to them. Um, some of that ended up on the editing room floor. And part of that was when we were talking about uh, the promotion of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So you can create a show that is meant to target the listener of color or right. whoever you're trying to reach. But if you don't tell them that you're doing it, mm-hmm. they have no idea to go over and do that. So we're talking about a multi-pronged approach. Sure. Now, another thing that we talked about was first off convincing the music directors, program directors of radio stations and of orchestras and such that there is a problem. Convince them of that, number right. one. Right. And number two is convince them that they can change. Mm-hmm. And we haven't hit that yet. You, so we, you're we asking haven't hit me, one or two, you're saying. Either. Well, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. At least not across the board. Mm-hmm. Right. So so what is the work? Just continue to tell your boss, look, classical music is racist. I mean, just repeating that sentence. What how how can we traverse step one? Mm-hmm. Because it didn't work for me. OK, so how so how would you just continuing to have the conversation and, you know, and then we get into how long do we wait? How long do we repeat ourselves X, Y, and Z? But there it is. There mm-hmm. it is. You know, you'll have all these people in, in suits and ties and turtlenecks sit, sitting around. <laughs> sitting, I'm thinking it's about somebody in particular uh, <laughs> sitting around a table, <laughs> um, you know, asking ourselves, well, okay, well, what can we do to, you know, no, no, no. That, that's what it is. That's the answer. Program, platform, music, platform experiences and stories and narratives that folks from communities that you have not engaged with, at least not traditionally, can latch on to and actually genuinely feel engaged by. And then we can go on from there. So, you know, I, I, I have my, you know, w- w- what I think needs to be done. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll see. But 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 that's 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 the answer anyway. Well, one of the things that we talked with Todd Steed about in Opus 67 as well was I just flat out asked him, how are you going to handle handle? Oh, look at your uh, segue is okay. Very good. Very good. Very good. But, Where's that? Oh, here we go. <laughs> so I'm giving this, uh, this particular article that I brought in, I'm giving a natural. All right. The uh, title of it, I'm looking at theconversation.com. Handel's Messiah Today, How Classical Music is Contending with Its Colonial Past. We've talked before about the vocabulary changing, mm-hmm. you know, out there. So look at we're using, they're using yeah, colonial yeah. in the title. Yep. Okay. So um, you can start to attract, um, let's just say, let's just put a fine tip on it. You can start to attract black listeners by adding things in to attract them. But you also have to think about what you're taking out, okay? Because hmm. you can go a long way to showing a black listener that you care about them and their experience by not giving air to the Messiah. Yeah. Okay. Now there's and, a and lot explaining why of, and right. getting into it. And there is a lot of 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 people who will fight back with all sorts of of things, but mm-hmm. but they can they don't look at it in black and white. Of you know, like we were talking about WC, if he wrote a, a song about a gollywog, we're going to get rid of his entire catalog. Yeah, yeah. But we're talking to people who are like, well, let's just not play children's games then. Okay. So they're not looking oh. at it. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So 
they're look at, in this uh, article in the conversation, they look at two different interpretations of Messiah. December of 2020, Toronto's Against the Grain Theater uh, produced a pre-recorded film on Hendel's Messiah, their reimagining of it, sort of a uh, it, it says it's a, a project part of exploring new collaborative models in indigenous-led opera in Canada. So the idea was they were going to have a Toronto symphony play, mm -hmm. and then all of the soloists were going to be um, soloists of color or radicalized musicians, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, that turns my stomach thinking about that in the title, acknowledging colonial music, understanding the history of, um, I forget the name of the schools, but the schools where they would send the indigenous children to westernize them. I forget the, mm. the, for the, the re-education schools or whatever. Okay. So understanding those two things and then fast forward to, we have this piece of music again, uh, uh, written by someone who's, uh, wealth was deeply tied into the transatlantic slave trade, you know, and juxtaposing that uh, on indigenous people mm -hmm. here in, in North America, that that literally does not make sense to me. I feel like, I, you know, I, I hate to feel like I'm any smarter than anyone else because I don't believe that I am. But somebody who's making one of these six figure salaries had to have thought about that. Or maybe they're not. Maybe they just don't understand those connections. I don't know. And this is why I'm bringing it up, because the second example of Messiah that they um, point out in this article is Soundstream's Electric Messiah, where they keep the text, but they let the artists that they've engaged to perform pick the music. So then there can be R&B, hip hop, rock. Sure. Um, um, slow pitch sound is the DJ that they highlight in here. And he actually shows his kit with some samples from from Messiah and he's doing some scratching with it. Reminds me of what Il Harmonic might do, yeah. you know, in sort of that vein. Mm -hmm. And the article then goes on to point out that having the Toronto Symphony up there with indigenous performers does nothing right. for the indigenous community. Right, so not a damn thing. Right, and so we're getting closer to it with Electric Messiah. And your overarching point is... Again, those things can exist in the space without handle fucking being there. Okay. Okay? So, we just have to, one... That those musical convince... aesthetics don't need handles um, uh, escorting them into the space, proverbially speaking. So, we get back to my point, is first you have to convince them that there is a problem, and then convince them that they can change it. You know... I want to go to the very first sentence of this article again. It's at the conversation. We're going to be here a while. I'll, I'll have we? it linked. <laughs> it says no work of Western classical music is more closely associated with the Christmas season than Handel's Messiah. Okay. First of all, this is the continuation of some idea that is not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. Let's stick specifically within Western classical music. When I think about, classical Christmas music before I, and of course, maybe my bias is coming through, but before I think of the Messiah, I'm thinking about the Nutcracker. Right. I'm thinking about tunes like Sleigh Ride. Okay. So let's even go um, beyond just strictly Western classical music. There's all sorts of stuff that most people would think of before they think of the Messiah. So I think so much of this is is just the industry working hard to maintain Handel's position in the field every December. I'm not sure that people are just dying. I mean, yes, there are some, but I'm not sure that anybody would just, it, no, nothing would fall apart 
if there was no platforming of Handel's Messiah every every uh, holiday season. I feel like this is something that's being forced and something that, you know, speaks to the continued conditioning of audiences when it comes to certain pieces of music. There's plenty of stuff that can go there. And when they say, oh, well, we're not talking about canceling the whole composer. Well, there's so much music out there. Canceling the whole composer, so-called canceling the whole composer, would not leave a gap in programming. Mm -hmm. Not even, not even in Christmas programming and not even in Christmas programming that is an oratorio. You know, we talk about Margaret Bond's Ballad of the Brown King. You know, that's one of the many things that could go there. And it, it seems like the estate of George Frederick Handel must be writing a fucking check to people or something. I mean, what is going on? Why does it have to be there? It had to be posted. Why does it have to be there? It does not have to be there. I mean, just freeing people's mind from the idea that these structures that we've built and that we uh, inherited through our various uh, uh, corners of the classical field have to be maintained and have to stay there. It's mm -hmm. getting frustrating at this point. And through my connections in radio, I've had interactions over the past year, year and a half with four different music directors. And they all said the very, they all said very similar variations on the same answer, which is, I don't see the Messiah going anywhere anytime soon. The rationale they might pop, prop up is, well, if you're going to hold Handel accountable for his holdings in a in a slavery concern uh you know a lot of them had that at the time you're so, right and we need to get rid of them right. so that that that's going to be the number one roadblock they'll try to throw up okay so my point is you will start to attract these listeners of color that you're talking about wanting to attract if you get serious about not only what you're adding but what you're taking out and making it clear why those omissions are happening sure can sure. you imagine i mean and and i did my best you know i wrote an essay about handle when, when i was <laughs> when i was over at npr can you imagine if a consort maybe not all but like some uh united front in uh in orchestras and radio stations came together specifically when it uh, comes to handles messiah and said we are facing the facts that handle X, Y, and Z, one, two, three, you know, list all of those things. Based on these learnings, we have decided that it is most equitable and most inclusive to these communities to do this, that, and the other. You know, mm -hmm. that would be huge. Mm -hmm. And there would be so many folks who never even thought about turning on classical radio to say, oh, I never even thought about that idea. Oh, wow. So they're finally, uh, even classical music has changed or, or whatever. That, that would be the bridge for so many folks. That's what I'm saying is that if if a radio station or an orchestra or, or band, whatever, said we are not going to platform the Messiah this year because of these reasons, mm -hmm. that goes a long way to telling the audience that you're trying to reach we're serious about change. Yeah, yeah. And they'll find every reason to bury some of these um, black women and black men out here saying why they're inappropriate or X, Y, and Z, but mm -hmm. we can't do this. And I'm not going to name any names. Anyway, um, I'll have that linked in the description. Anything else here on handle? I've had all the handle that I can handle uh, <laughs> without, without starting to scream and holler, you know, <laughs> any, uh, uh, you, you good? I'm you good. good. No, I'm going to go get you some dad pants for that joke. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> to, uh, to get us out of this, um, this, oh, you gave it a natural to get us out of this natural. I do want to play a little bit of the Ballad of the Brown King. Again, this is an oratorio by Margaret Bond, something that's very holiday appropriate and something that uh, not only could replace 
handles Messiah across the country here in the United States, but something that should replace handles Messiah across the uh, country because we're talking about American music. We're talking about American classical music. We're talking about music by a black woman. So we're talking about equity and we're talking about all of our history. This isn't a piece of music just for black folks. This is a piece of music to help all Americans and all folks around the world understand the depth and complexity, complexity and diversity that is Western classical music. Handel's Messiah don't have nothing to do with these people. I mean, well, maybe, maybe some of them, but you know, based on inheritances and all of all of those sorts mm. of things. But mm. you know, I, f I feel like everyone's boat would would rise, proverbially speaking, mm. if we could shift to something like the Ballad of the Brown King. So we're gonna listen to a little bit of this to get us into our third and final accidental for this week. Sing of the King Who Was Tall and Brown. I've programmed that on uh, on some radio Did you? In, in the uh, in the in the past months. You get some feedback. You cannot. Oh, you know, I got some good feedback. But see, what I was getting to is even with a, a subtitle like that, you cannot tell me that there are some folks deeply embedded in classical music that would have a problem with the idea of a title like that. Oh, sing of the king who was tall and brown. Oh, mm -hmm. well, why does he have to be brown? Oh, why did mm -hmm. you know? You see, even though I, I'll pass by all of these nativity scenes around here with a white baby Jesus, that's another conversation. But even those and will have the black king there of the three kings you know so that's all this woman is writing about you know yeah. we have so far to go because we know and i'm not going to be gaslit into uh being convinced that oh well you know folks aren't like that and uh, no i know what the emails would be and i know what people say around these sorts of things who we got such a long way to go it's hard for me to even imagine things like forgiveness and uh and redemption when i'm in in moves like this you try to get me pissed off here talk about george frederick handle of all people it wasn't that hard <laughs> anyway um y'all stop it with the handle and i know I, I you know i see a lot of people posting on uh around the holiday season oh i'm singing the solo from um handles messiah here and x y and z and uh, look we're all entitled to our opinion so if you want to know mine i say that you have no business of anyone of any color platforming the work of a slave trader and as you said earlier well if we're gonna knock him out for his racism there's a lot of people that we need to knock out well let's get to fucking work knocking these people out that's my answer to that anyway uh, third and five promise. Thank you. This this gets me fired up every time I think about it. Anyway, third and final accidental for this week. I'm going to go ahead and uh, give us a sharp round out this uh, first movement with something a little bit more positive. Just some of classical music's Western classical music, so-called classical music's notable moments of 20. 21. There are several articles out there that speak to uh, several different things. I'll, I'll post a few there, but the first I wanted to speak to Scott was the emergence and growth of Randall Goosby as a soloist. We have uh, uh, platformed a lot of his music here on Triloquy. Uh, I know that you have played uh, his music on your radio show. So he's someone whose influence and impact is really growing and it's gonna continue to grow, I think, from my perspective, as yeah. we move forward. Um, 
with the rise of Randall Goosby, for folks who don't know, uh, incredible Afro-American violinist who uh, was signed this year with DECA, right? Not right. Not with DECA. Yep. Um, and has just you know been recording some really incredible music by black composers and some composers who are not black and just doing the work out here. So we have this young black powerhouse violinist. Mm -hmm. Has his position in the field uh, made the work something for you more intense easier what's it like um platforming not just a violinist and not just a violinist playing music by william grant still for samuel example, coleridge taylor, samuel coleridge -Taylor mm -hmm. but a violinist who is black and a violinist who is young and someone who you know represents the generation z leg of the change we're trying to put into the into the industry what's been your reaction to um dealing with his music in your professional life this number year? one he's a hell of a player oh yeah and oh, yeah. um, I think that he's sort of, it, it seems to I mean, it seems to me that he's sort of positioned himself as sort of the Samuel K Coleridge Taylor authority. Hasn't he released some Coleridge Taylor things that haven't been recorded before? Maybe. Or, yeah, maybe. Um, so I, I think that that's a great niche for him, but um, I, I would love to hear what he would play by a living Black sure. Composer. Sure. So sure. Sure. Let's add. And, and, let's and add there, to the repertoire. And there because, is some of that on that Roots album. There's, right. Yeah. You know, right. There's some uh, living composers on there. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I see what you were so talking about too, though, about um, his role. Mm -hmm. Would that be how you sure. described it? His role uh, in a predominantly white format. Yeah. Being a black man mm -hmm. playing. Uh, stuff that's quote unquote acceptable or pleasing or what? And you being the so-called woke white man who has been tasked <laughs> with sharing that role with your audience or trying to contextualize that role with your audience. Because that's I'm your not, job. I'm that's that's what you got to do. I know. Yeah. So again, what has been your experience having to deal with Randall Gooseby in this way in your professional life? If anyone has written in to complain about it, I haven't seen it. They haven't written me directly. Mm-hmm. And like I told you a few opuses ago, anytime I have a piece of music by a woman or a composer of color or features a musician of color, mm -hmm. they get the top spot. Yeah. So I've been talking about Gooseby quite a bit whenever he comes across my playlist. Yeah, yeah. Very, you know, again, just a, a few quick notable things here. So huge shout out to Randall Gooseby. We're going to continue to uh, root you on and, and support everything you're doing. I certainly am. Uh, another thing I wanted to, I have three quick things. I think it's three. I have three uh Maybe four quick things. Uh, the second one is Fire Shut Up In My Bones. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for folks who don't know, the Met Opera uh, platform for the first time in 130-something years, 120-something years, a work by a black composer. I got to go and see the opera. I got to be in the crowd. You know, I got to be uh, dressed Afrocentrically alongside a whole bunch of other black folks who were doing the same and, you know, just really being a part of this space. And it's even led me uh, to more operas and, you know, to digging in deeper with my work with the Black Opera Alliance and those things mm -hmm. uh, coming up in January, um, uh, I'm going to feature conversations that I had with the uh, the composer and the librettist of a work uh, called The Snowy Day. So, you know, black opera that's not even about badness or oppression or Trauma. struggle. You know, it's just about a boy playing in the snow on a snowy day. Imagine a black boy getting to do that, you know. <laughs> but anyway, um, I think Fire Shut Up In My Bones, you know, has to be just put out there as a notable 2021 moment because it shows what those spaces can look like. Yeah, 
it was probably still predominantly black. I mean, sorry, predominantly white when I was uh, at the Met watching the show Fire Shove in My Bones. But it was a good mix. I mean, maybe it was yeah. 40, 60 or something, 45, 55. Like it really felt way different. And I think mm. if we can do that there, mm -hmm. we can do that across the board. Now, of course, there are the conversations of who um, is the money going to, you know, what are these institutions doing with, you know, the black dollars that they're getting? Is that the reason why they're platforming these things? Mm. There are all of those conversations, but I just had to, you know, name fire shut up in my bones, you know, just this mm. historic moment that has opened up the door for so much more. You know, I think if not uh, this upcoming season, the following season, they're going to have Anthony Davis's, who was also on Triloquy, I forget the number, but Anthony Davis's Malcolm X opera. Damn. Cool. I imagine that's going to be more of a <laughs> that's going to be more of a struggle for some of the people. If you had a piece of me, I don't know if you can say, have you ever had a Malcolm X themed piece of music that you've had to platform or, or talk about it? Not that I can it? remember. So, mm -hmm. okay, so when that comes around, there are going to be a lot of audience members, both on your radio show and at the Met, who were here and around when Malcolm X was, you know, mm -hmm. some older people mm -hmm. and some people who likely did not have a very positive opinion I'd of imagine. him. So I wonder what that's going to do for opera. What, 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 do you, what do you think? If, if, if you could just speculate as far as the conversations that have to come from a Malcolm X themed opera in these most traditional of classical music spaces. Do you think, well, what do you think? You, you think everybody's going to be calm? Everyone's going to behave? There's not going to be any negative energy well, <laughs> or something else? <laughs> there's one guy I know that would write in, but I don't even open his emails anymore, so I don't care. And, you know, and so, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. If... It seems to me that anytime complaints come in, it goes to like the general box. Mm -hmm. I don't see it. Yeah. yeah. And maybe they're holding it from me. I don't know. And, you know, one of these days we need to talk about that because those folks aren't just disappearing or not existing. You know, we can and whatever fields of work we're in, take those negative comments and push them to the side. But those people are connected to funding sources. Those people are connected with uh, educational systems when it comes to Western classical music, you know, all of these things. Sure, so, sure. you know, sooner or later, um, we're, we're going to have to face each other right, and for real. Yeah, you shouldn't turn away from them completely because those conversations are happening. Just like the conversations that we have on this podcast, mm -hmm. I try to tell people in management, both at my work and elsewhere, if you're not paying attention to them, it's it's to your detriment because they are happening. And, and, and beyond, you know, to our own individual detriment, I think about what, uh, arts institutions are passing along to the next generation. You know, mm. our program directors at radio stations right now, thinking about what they're passing on to the folks who have to be in those positions in 40 and 50 years. Mm. Are the orchestras thinking about the fact that all of these blue hairs and gray hairs are not going to be alive in a couple of decades. These folks that y'all are placating to, we have to consider those things anyway. Mm. I feel like fire shut up in my bones is a baby step, a half a step in a in the correct direction, because again, I don't, 
I don't like the idea of the very first black opera on that stage being one filled with so much pain and and um, black oppression and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. I get it, you know, but I did enjoy getting to see the works. A really notable moment for uh, 2021. If you haven't seen or heard excerpts from Fire Shut Up In My Bones, I really encourage you to uh, try to do so because it really is a, an incredible show. And shout out to uh, Will Liverman, member of the Triloquy family who really took that role and of, of Charles, really took that role and, and created something incredible and was a part of a very historic moment. Um, my final little notable moment for uh, 2021 actually, you know, includes Will Liverman. This year, it doesn't seem like this year, Scott, but it was this year in 2021 when the Triloquy podcast made it to the New York Times. That's right. We really did it. What were your reactions getting my text message versus how you think about it now? You know, at this point, being in New York Times, oh, whatever, no big deal. But in the moment, it kind of felt like <laughs> a thing, right? At, at least for me, did it for you? Yeah, I I was flattered by it. I know that it didn't come off that way in my description about it. <laughs> um, all I'm trying to say is that I I if I believe the good reviews, I have to believe the bad ones too. So I choose to not believe any of them. And plus, if you start if you start going ah, we were in the New York Times, and then you get lazy. Exactly. You know, exactly. And you can't you can't shirk your duties just because you got an attaboy but you know you talk about good reviews and bad reviews i consider this a great review let's let's take let's take a listen back or a read back it says triloquy has always cast an eye on classical music that's both critical and caring see we care a little bit even they say that but its mission was freshly urgent as the field was forced by the killing of george floyd and the black lives matter movement da 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 blah 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 y'all know how i feel about that part of the conversation because we were here before that uh, mcqueen and blankenship are agitators sometimes recklessly so <laughs> with dubious factual claims that can undercut otherwise strong arguments it's thrilling though to witness their passion their open-minded and omnivorous approach to music okay so this is my point if you have an institution like the new york times and then you get uh, directly into their music and even their classical music corner the things that they are patting on the back you know because i read the things the recordings that come out all of those things that they praise in many ways, not all the time, but in many ways represent what we're trying to change and what we're fighting against. So when the ops call me reckless, when the mm. ops use phrases like dubious factual claims, I feel like I'm doing the right thing. I feel like that I'm on the right path if, they, if, if they're saying that. So to have that with you know, the the more positive things for me was a complete win. And I'm not just saying that. I, I really actually do feel that way because if the New York Times got on there completely praising Triloquy, see, that would make me feel like I'm not agitating enough. There's somebody who, oh. who didn't disagree with me in the room and I need somebody to mm. <laughs> to, to, to feel that way. Um, that, that that's, that's what I got on that. I mean, do you, I mean, Considering what I just said, when, do you consider it a bad review still? No, really? I don't. And I never did consider okay. it a bad review. Okay. But it's funny to hear my name after yours and then agitator. I'm well, like, Because no. you're here too, because you're going to jail too. <laughs> if they take me, you go in. <laughs> I'll be the one looking over at you saying that escalated quickly. Um, and, and by the way, it's the opinions that are dubious, not the facts. Period. Period. Um, our responsibility as hosts of this show and you know as as we continue to grow you know the audience is getting really just beyond what i ever imagined it's really ex exciting you know um but especially you know getting a nod from uh, a, a publication like the new york times 
Is there a sense of responsibility that you feel like grew with that shout out? Certainly for me, I was like, okay, so they talk about us in the New York Times. I need to make sure the sound is right. Next week, I need to make sure, you know, it, it, I, I dug in a little deeper. Every sure. opus, I feel that way. Yeah, yeah. Because we have a there responsibility. A resp yes, yes. And we, and we have a unique little, <laughs> you've been in, you've been in audio media when it, in, in music, even classical music for decades mm -hmm. now, you know, talk about your view on, and not just Triloquy, but um, podcasts like ours, you know, you know, shout out to Classically Black and everyone out there doing their thing. The unique role of long form loose conversation sort of things like this is very different than what you were trained in but from my perspective equally 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 important equally valid mm -hmm. equally essential i think it goes to show you that yeah i've got 31 years experience in this medium with this particular format and i don't know shit because it, i when podcasts first came out i was like Oh, okay. This is like AOL. This will be, you know, like like the yeah. vault to something else, mm -hmm. you know, or something that just takes up a, a, a you know, like swing dancing that sure. came back for a year. Yeah. But look at us now. Yeah. You know, and uh, we have podcasts getting Emmys, right? Or we have. I don't know about getting Emmys. Well, they're getting awards. They're, you know, the, they're getting millions of dollars. That's what I'm. Um, some, <laughs> and not us. Some but. podcasts are getting people off dead, death row. Yeah, I mean, it's all sorts of stuff happening. So, you know, I for me, that was a really, you know, important moment. And not that I need, you know, the white validation. That's not what I'm saying. But, mm -hmm. you know, for our work to be recognized in that way was a big deal to me. And it uh, it lit a fire under me to make sure that we're actually talking about something that's worth a damn here. Dubious claims are not. So, yeah. you know, it is what it is. Um as we transition into the second movement, I wanted to share some music by uh, Julius Eastman because I've seen his name coming up more this year as well. Again, as we're digging in more into the conversations of DEI and inclusivity of programming and equity, who was left out, Julius Eastman's name has come up a lot. We've definitely talked about Julius Eastman on this podcast and you know how we can frame certain pieces of music with sort of challenging um, stories connected to them. Um, one I wanted to share today um, is called Feminine. It's 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 something that, you know, from my perspective, speaks to some of these uh, toxic masculine ideas and status quos that you've spoken to that oppress all men and certainly all women. Mm -hmm. um, if we really dig into and think about it, Julius Eastman, as a queer black man, of course, was thinking about these things as it applied to his life, his sexuality, his culture, all of those things. So to be able to have this piece of music um, I think is 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 really useful as we move forward in these conversations and try to take things to the next level. So here's a um, a performance of Julius Eastman's Feminine to get us into the second movement.
That's the ensemble Wild Up. I believe they're based out on the West Coast, performing that work, Feminine by Julius Eastman. I'm determined to make sure that this is under two hours this week because I don't want to. I don't want to make a habit of of getting longer and longer. Okay. Um, I say that you know for us to think about time as I ask you this question. Okay, and I'm we're gonna go through this as quickly as we can. A few weeks back, I asked you about how you would contextualize for an audience the feelings behind Julius Eastman's evil ninja, I'll mm, say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, everything that's connected around that. And you talked about how you wouldn't be able to. Maybe that story will be different for you when it comes to a piece of music called Feminine. And the things when it comes to gender dynamics and toxic gender roles that a queer black man must have been feeling and ways that you as a cisgender white male can also speak to that. Would that be an easier, and I'm because it's not an easy conversation. I'm not saying that, but would that be a more plausible way forward for you as far as contextualizing some real feelings by this real composer in front of your audience? That is a great way to come at it, I think, because my my, my music is going to deal with that. It's going to tie into past opuses and also into the Hendel thing, but. Um, yeah, that 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 just kind of makes me explode with different ideas to mm-hmm. think about coming at it from that perspective. And and how many the, people listening would connect to that? This is a real story. Right, we're not talking about right. Haydn and his drum roll symphony. We're 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 talking about some real feelings right. and some no, real that's stuff. Good. And some real and some real music go along with it. So, you know, that's one of the many reasons why uh, decolonizing these spaces and diversifying uh, this programming is so important because it will benefit all of us. We will all be even more enriched by the art form if we have some real conversations that we can have and connect to it anyway. Mm -hmm. Not to uh, like I said, I don't want to spend too much time here. We're here in the second movement where uh, Scott and I are going to take the second ending. We take a piece of music that we've been listening to over and over again all week. And instead of repeating it fully we listen to a bit of it here and speak to why we were repeating it i'll get us started this week scott so we're in the midst of kwanzaa happy kwanzaa everyone as we record this um uh, the guiding principle for tonight is Kujichagulia, the uh, self-determination you know we we did that we've done the kwanzaa breakdowns here but i was uh, participating in a virtual kwanzaa celebration yesterday with um, a group called bad buddhists of african descent and first of all i love that acronym because bad that sounds that sounds like something i need to be a part of mm. anyway so <laughs> we were doing our thing and you know having our discussions and sharing things and it um closed with two musical selections the second of those two musical selections were excerpts from beyonce's blackest king mm. and and that's how i knew oh, okay so this is exactly where i need to be <laughs> but the first of those two musical selections was a bit of music I hadn't heard before. It was by an artist named Mamadou Diabate. I'm going to read a little bit about him. Uh, he's from Mali, a musician known for his work with the kora. That's a, um, a an African instrument. It sort of sounds like a, um, a harp. He began uh, playing when he was a kid and really has, has grown to record all sorts of music and really does a great job of platforming the African classical tradition, you know, throughout the airwaves and the, and the different things. A lot of people will categorize this music as so-called world music, but this is an example of what I believe believe we need to put into our classical spaces because the music is just that it's classical it doesn't have anything to do with western europe or the united states or something rooted in the motherland but it's just as classical and just as beautiful and as soothing as so many other things out here everything else out here anyway let's take a listen to a bit of this 
think about forgiveness, redemption, the new year, New Year's resolutions, all of those things. That music was really the perfect backdrop for some of those ideas, even as I've been meditating today on Kujichagulia, self-determination, thinking about those things. How can my self-determination be even stronger and and uh, have even more um, urgency within it? That music just served as the perfect backdrop for me to get into my mind, get into my thoughts and, and really dig into that. In a black space like Buddhists of African descent, this is affirmed and celebrated not as a uh, a way of changing classical music, but as something that is classical. Mm. That's why it was put into the space, starting with something classical and then getting into the Beyonce, all to celebrate Kwanzaa. What if every arts institution celebrated uh, uh this 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 sort of that track is called Tunga, by the way, uh, music for the Kora, you know, in the same way that that group did. We would really begin to see how deep the world of classical music is. I won't spend the time to talk about my issues with the phrase world music this week, but this is what this is what I'm talking about. This is an example of how we need to decolonize that phrase and consider classical traditions just in the same way that we uh, consider the Tchaikovsky and the Rachmaninoff and the Copeland and all of those things. This is that, the African sort, but it's the exact same thing. So mm -hmm. I was really glad to be exposed to this. I hope all of y'all will go back and check out the music of Mamadou Diabate um, and his music for the Kora. Uh, and that's not even uh, the only example we have. You know, William Grant still wrote music that uh, was inspired by the Kora and other African harp-like instruments. So there's even that bridge back into the orchestral realm if that's where you want to take it. You just have to, we, we all have to be willing to open up the doors and consider more than we have. And this piece of music, I think, is a, a really great example of that. I've really had a great time uh, spending some time with this artist and this piece of music all week. Um, sort of reminds me of, uh, like, if we were going to put that on the air, it could go right up against uh, some lute music, maybe even harp or harpsichord. Yeah, yeah, because I wasn't really looking at the screen um, the first time I heard it, you know, when it was played oh, really? at the meeting. So I was like, okay, so this is some sort of Renaissance something. And then I look at the screen and I, you know, see this black man with this African instrument. Interesting. Here we are. We have so much out here. You know, imagine, you know, the kids knowing what the, what a Cora is, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, the music that y'all can platform for your Kwanzaa or your Juneteenth or whatever things y'all are doing over there with with uh, with no or few black people there. But that's another conversation. Um, that's uh, that is the that that is an example of what, what, what we could have. Anyway, mm -hmm. anyway, what you got? What you got for this week? Well, um, seeing as we are in the final throes of 2021, I, too, have been doing some categorizing mm -hmm. and looking back and thinking about things and um uh, I mentioned a few opuses ago that I'm having conversations with my father that where he's been getting emotional and I've had to take on the role of being the one who's got his feet on the ground, who's yeah. keeping it together, which is different for me. Um, <clears throat> there's been a few occasions where I got with guys that I used to run around with down in Omaha years ago. And because I felt like I needed to talk with about a heavy subject with somebody who I knew really well. And when they unloaded on me, I was like, I got it. I got it easy mm -hmm. compared. Okay. So my goal going into the coming year is to allow myself to be more vulnerable, to extend that trust in hopes that other men who feel the same as me, who feel like you're not supposed to show 
uh, emotion that you're not supposed to show depth of feeling, you know, because it's not masculine or something like that, or that you might be moved to tears by um, a clever turn of phrase or a piece of music. Mm-hmm. I am at, I am going to allow myself the space to do that and not beat myself up about it in the hopes that people like my friends will realize that I am here for them. That's beautiful. To be able to talk that they, that I I feel like I have spent so much time on my own and being self-sufficient and relying on myself that I've got a good foothold and I'm here. If you need to talk to me about anything, I want you to know that I am here. And um, I've, I've been listening to hold on by Tom Waits a lot, mm-hmm. but this record that I got recently is "Women Do Waits." You know, women women sing waits. Is that that you've got it up over there? What's it called? Yeah, women sing waits. Women yeah. sing waits. So it's uh, two records full of Tom Waits songs sung by women, and a lot of people have a a, a hard time getting past Tom's gravelly, gruff demeanor, but when you listen to a woman uh, allow your feminine side to come through and dominate for a little bit. He is an absolute poet, but these lines in this song are what I want to leave you with right now. If you need anything from me, if you want to talk, I'm here. So don't look back, just come on, Jim. Oh, you gotta hold on, hold on, baby. Standing right here, gotta hold on Well, he gave her a dime store watch You know, and how, from how the, people will talk about how we have more in common than we like to think about or talk about or even acknowledge a lot right off the bat when i hear those lyrics hold on i'm thinking about the negro spiritual hold on you know keep your hand on the plow i think mm. we've talked about that here mm-hmm. you know there the, yes that that is a beautiful theme and a beautiful thing to affirm uh, certainly in in the way that you have a connection i want to make if i may just for a minute so we we're talking about the core of music and how that's African classical and should be um, uh, platformed and and affirmed and celebrated as such. I see the same for this. Now, this style of music, whatever you want to label it as, you know, that's not necessarily my bag. That's not what I'm going to gravitate to. But when I think about the origins of what America has created musically, I see this as a part of that classical tradition. And I understand how a lot of people are challenged by that idea. But this music wasn't invented, created, codified anywhere else in the world. Now, we can talk about the black origins of it. Mm. You know, we can definitely do that. But at the end of the day, it is still American music and what I would even call American classical music. So as we talk about, you know, I I think I said at the beginning of this podcast, I'm thinking about more class solidarity and more broader things in the same way that we talk about the way that black stories and black aesthetics, black experiences have been intentionally kept out. The same is true for this. Mm. Okay. So for all of the white folks who think that the classical institutions don't also put your experiences and your music on the back seat, well, I hate to tell you, it's, it's just as bad. This is your, there are folks who are moved by music like this, by the works of Tom Waits. And as it's um, performed on this album, that deserves equal footing. And 
we have to work together. We have to work together to change that. Again, we we have music out here by Handel and all this stuff that has nothing to do with anything. And we have music that speaks to classical traditions of the United States that connects to the hearts and minds and experiences of people living today. And it's put to the side for the sake of this European nonsense. So when we talk about decolonizing classical music, it's not something that just benefits we black folk. It benefits all of us, folks who fall into the camp of, of music like this, folks who fall into the camps of, of music like mine and everything in between. I hope folks really understand that. And I hope that we can really move our minds toward getting there in some way, just recognizing that we can really transform the phrase classical music if we would have the courage to do so. Yes, there's going to be pushback. There are mm-hmm. going to be people disagreeing. There are going to be people who have a problem. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? I don't feel like I'm stretching. I don't feel like I'm stretching. That's classical music. It's the American kind. It's the kind that's not rooted in Western Europe and those traditions, but that doesn't make it not classical music. And that's something that as we move forward, we're going to have to really face. So I hope that I can get the folks who aren't black (laughs) thinking about, Mm. you know, your music, your Mm. traditional music, your classical music, the music that's classic to your experience and start asking the questions. Why won't these arts institutions put the same respect on that as they do this European music or PR or music stylized after the uh, Western European orchestral aesthetic. Mm. I want folks to think about that. That's what comes to my mind when I hear that music and all the people that are tied to it. Folks living in Appalachia or the hills of wherever and the plains of Colorado, wherever, you know, these um, mostly white, maybe all white homogenous areas are and the classic forms of music that come through there. I'm fighting for that as well because that deserves equal placement in the concert halls. Mm. That's, That's what I got there. Thank you for bringing this in. Anything more? Shout out to Tom Waits. Just one more time. Um, let yourself be vulnerable. If something's bothering you, talk about it. Don't be afraid. It doesn't make you less. I'm here. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And amen. Well, as we, uh, we're getting into the third movement, uh, I have the great honor of closing out 2021. Um, and uh, it's uh, the third movements here on Triloquy with my conversation with the Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker. The Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker is a new Renaissance artist who creates all sorts of art that really speaks to the experience of taking in the art, really just experiencing sounds and, and what that means. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that um, after the conversation, but uh, the Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker, uh, she recently uh, had a collaboration with uh, the uh, Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians uh, that you know I talked a bit about with Renee Baker a couple of weeks ago, as well as with the American Composers Forum. They had a, a collaboration down in Chicago uh, where a work by Elizabeth was premiered. So we talk a bit about that. Uh, we talk about her approach to sound, art, music, maybe even what is music, and all sorts of uh, really great stuff. I was really honored to be able to uh, feature her on the show. Where we get started, I was trying to be all smart and educated and deep in my uh, first question <laughs> well, well, with her. And I started going into a tribe called Quest because because, you know, if you go to her website, she'll say in the same way that you say a tribe called Quest every time you're referring to them, you need to say the Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker. So I was trying to uh, draw those lines. And she actually um, <laughs> sort of backed me up and talked about how that sort of uh, language, you know, say the whole thing mm. comes from a boondocks joke. <laughs> that, uh, she she, she gets said, don't into. prime the pump on me. 
and I appreciate it. You know, sometimes I need to be got together. So anyway, in, in that spirit, uh, we're going to get into uh, uh, our conversation with the main title from the Boondocks. I remember reading the comments trip as a kid. Mm. Of course, the the animated series is legendary yeah. and it's supposed to be coming back. You know, that's really going to be some triloquy material for mm. us to get it to anyway. Uh, it, but in the meantime, here's the uh, main title from uh, the Boondocks. And here's my conversation with the Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker. I am the stone that the builder refused. I am the visual, the inspiration that made ladies sing the blues. I'm the spark that makes your idea bright. The same spark that lights the dark so that you can know your left from your right. I am the ballad in your box, the bullet in the gun, the inner glow that lets you know to call your brother son. The story that just begun, the promise of what's to come. And I'm going to remain a soldier till the war is won. won. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, I love the Tribe Called Quest. I love that they destroyed so many speaker systems with, like, uh, their first album. Um, but the quote actually comes from the Boondocks, and I really love Aaron Magruder. And it's, like, the first time that uh, the character played by Cat Williams, a pimp named Slickback, is introduced. Mm-hmm. And he's like... No, it's a pimp named Slickback, like a tribe called Quest. You say the whole thing. Yes, Tom, every time. Um, so, yeah, so that's actually where it comes from. It's like a, it's a very, uh, it's a very deep boondocks joke that literally nobody has ever called me on because apparently people don't watch the boondocks enough to know about these things. Um <laughs> So now you have me thinking about the opening music of the boondocks when, um, you know, they're using words. I'm, I'm the stone that the builder refused. I'm the visual. I'm, I'm all of these different things. I wonder um, if there's any application of that idea in your work and, and your career being many, many things. My close friends say I'm like Huey. So <laughs> um, like that comes in. Uh, I like to think we all have a little Huey Freeman in us. Um, But yeah, I mean, I really don't, I don't necessarily have themes and stuff with my work. I I create because it just is very natural for me and it's how I process the world. Um, But yeah, I, I really don't, I don't put any external things on creation and I mean, I, I really don't focus very much on human narrative. Um, that's never really been, as I've gotten older in my practice, at least, it's never really been the focus for me. Um, and I'm a firm believer of like, a sound can just be a sound. Uh, it doesn't have to be tied to human narrative. And um, like one of the things I think that people don't consider in sort of this concert presentation that has become an accepted norm. It's like within program notes, there's almost like an apologizing and explaining as to why these sounds had to go together. And I find that that a lot of people spend so much time in program notes and trying to create like this rhetoric that it pushes into the audience 
this belief that they have to interpret the work in the way that the creator views it. But everyone brings something different to the table and no one's opinion is less valid. No one's experience is less valid than somebody else's. So I, yeah, I think that the next evolution that has to happen is that we have to start getting rid of this whole, we need program notes, we need explanation for everything and just starting to like live in sound, in experience, in an idea that that concert experience is not necessarily replicatable each time, um, that it's something different and that the people in the room bring a different energy, which ultimately makes it different each time and special each time. Well, then I wonder how we can get there as a civilization, considering the fact that there are so many cultural barriers between many of us and lots of music, lots of concert experiences. Some argue that things like program notes bridge those gaps. So if it and I definitely understand what you're saying. I'm just wondering how we can how can, how can we get there as far as bridging those gaps and destroying the expectations that we put on ourselves as listeners. So it's not about, you can't have um, an idea. It's moving to a model where it's about dialogue. So uh, lately I've had performers who have presented my work and they're like, oh, I wanted to say something about the process or whatever. And I was like, you can say that. I would say it afterwards. So then it's in dialogue with the with the people that are experiencing it instead of the creator God has decided that this is how we're interpreting things and that's it. So yeah, I, I specifically tell people not to tell thing, like tell anyone anything before it's presented, let people come to it with their own experience and then it becomes a conversation. And within that conversation, you have the opportunity to change lives, change perspectives, or at least open people up to new things because it's a less confrontational way of experiencing something together. So is there a relationship, you know, if, if we're talking about saying things about uh, the pieces and the works after the fact, not imposing, you know, something from the outside and experiencing those things. I wonder uh, what your experiences have been as far as where the conversation goes. If someone goes to a concert and and uh, hears one of your creations and they have a reaction that runs exactly alongside some of the things you were feeling, feeling or, or maybe the opposite of what you were feeling. I wonder what your experiences have been there in those dialogues. I've had a lot of really profound experiences. I mean, I find a lot with my work, it's people contacting me after the fact because it takes a moment for them to really process what has happened in the moment. Um, one uh, quite profound experience I had um, would be I did a sound installation in Oregon a couple years ago 
um, with performances within that sound installation throughout the week. And after one of the presentations, a woman came up to me at the very end of the day when the installation was about to close. And she was just in tears. And I sat there with her for like a good hour and a half. And for the first 20 minutes, she didn't speak at all. Mm. And then um, just slowly, she started opening up about how I had sort of opened up the possibility that she could she could be creative in mm. her life. She was in her 60s and um, people had told her for many years that she couldn't be creative. She didn't have the right to be creative. And um, something I said um, when talking about um, what I was doing within the space and how I didn't really have a preconceived notion about what was to happen in that space uh, resonated with her so deeply um, that it just caused her to have a very visceral epiphany. And, and then I talked to her, you know, for quite a bit and I didn't see her, you know, again, that whole festival. Um, but about six to nine months later, I received an email, um, which she also sent to the university about how profoundly that one moment had changed her life and the lives of like people in her life. And for me, that's like, we've done something really important. Um, I'm not really into this sort of performative thing where I feel that a lot of times accessibility and trying to change the world has become very performative and everyone is looking for immediate Instagrammable results. And I'm for the slow burn. Mm. I'm for the sustainable change that happens when one single person's life is profoundly changed. And then that radiates out into people around them. And it just, it's a slow fire but it burns much longer. I appreciate that story because it's reminding me of the very rigid nature that many of us entered uh, music with, the whole right or wrong, in tune, out of tune, all of those paradigms and, and structures. Growing into creativity, freeing ourselves of those parameters is hard work. I wonder what that process was like for you, or is that something that you had to experience at all? I mean, I have pretty much always been outside the box. Um, you know, I was a classical guitar performance major, which I tell everyone that nobody should ever be because there is no <laughs> career outlook. You can study classical guitar, just not don't try to get a performance degree in it. Um, so, 
you know, I was, I was an outsider even in my studies. Um, and then of course, when I switched to piano performance, you know, I was also a bit of an outsider just because of the program that I was in. Um, so I really never had a right or wrong. Um, and I was always coming from things from a different angle because I also, you know, I went to traditional music school by day, but then was involved in underground experimental music and noise music by night. So mm -hmm. I, my view of the world is very different to begin with. Um, and one of my, you know, good friends, Chris Nettow, um, is a punk rock musician and has like, I don't even know how many bands Chris has now, <laughs> but he, you know, he works uh, for the government actually. And uh, he always says at his shows, like there's nothing special about me being up here. Anyone can do this. Um, you can go home today, learn to start, uh, learn an instrument and start your own band. And so like, I've had that mentality of yes, there are learned things that do help you with certain things, but really anyone can be creative. And this sort of elitist structure that we have doesn't really do anyone any good. Um, and it's also anti the way that music used to be made. Mm -hmm. You know, people had instruments in their homes before they had radios. They were creating constantly. People would do needlepoint. People would um, write. And so humans used to be much more expressive creatively than they are now. I mean, yeah, I guess you could be creative on TikTok, but it's a much a much more intimate type of creative expression was happening. And we really lost that in this new modern world, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So how do you uh, navigate creativity in, in this purest form with some of the requirements of the world? When we talk about capitalism and selling albums, the competitive nature of going for commissions and, and grants, how, how, do you, how do you navigate those two things? I do not. <laughs> um, people come to me and they say, I would like to commission something. And then, you know, we work through it. If it's a good fit, it is. Um, I don't really, I'm not, I'm not a person that's been driven by competition in this. I mean, even in music school, when everyone else was, you know, fighting over resources and like that was just never my vibe so yeah I I mean it's to live the way I do is probably very quiet it's a quiet revolution against capitalism and like overwork culture I've worked very hard don't get me wrong mm -hmm. but as I've gotten older I have purposefully pressed against this this thing of uh competition because at the end of the day there's no one like the honorable elizabeth a baker and so it's like if you want the honorable elizabeth a baker you're gonna pay what she's worth to get her there and then i'm going to rest in the time in between 
So that's, yeah, that's really kind of how it works. Um, I'm not, I really don't live in the land of stress the way other people do. Sure. Um, I don't live in the land of external uh, pressures, external ideals, like entering my mind. It's just Elizabeth and what Elizabeth wants to do. And, and everyone else kind of just has to accept it. Are external affirmations a part of that, I wonder? Is that something that you even work outside of, the expectation of an affirmation from the outside? No, uh, I just, I, I really am an internal person, much more than people uh, probably realize. Um, a friend of mine, uh, he often compares me to like Sakamoto um, and like just very similar vibes you know what you want to do you know what you're going to do it's very clear and there really aren't external forces at work good or bad because you can have people gas you up and like that takes you out of Mm -hmm. the brain space that you need to be to create purely and authentically so yeah no I'm I'm I know it's always like a very weird thing for people, especially when they're interviewing me. Um, I, if I were more like, uh, I don't know, egotistical about it in some way, I might (laughs) say that at some point in time through my work, I must've achieved something very akin to enlightenment where I just don't hang my hat on a lot of the worldly stuff. Mm. Um, And it's like, it's not necessarily, it's a spiritual thing that's not really a spiritual thing. It just was like, I felt in a lot of peace. You know, I don't, in my career, I, I really don't feel as an overarching thing, of course, there's pressures when I'm like dealing with electronics that don't work. Um, (laughs) But like as an overarching thing, I never really felt in competition with other people. And I felt like peace and intuitively like this was what I was supposed to be doing. Um, So it's quite hard to explain, but I guess the closest thing to make people understand as much as enlightenment is not understood um is that it it must be some form of that yeah yeah and and i can definitely speak to that my day begins and ends every day with recitations from the lotus sutra that speak exactly to that i think it's a beautiful thing uh to think about to the point of not being in competition and and uh, people and institutions approaching the Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker. I think, you know, this is a a great place to transition into one of your latest collaborations. I wonder if you had heard of the American Composers Forum or AACM before uh, they approached you, before you received the commission. So I did apply for that. Um, I applied when I was on tour and I was like very sure I was not going to get it. Um, but I just did it on a whim. Um, I knew of uh, ACF. I was less familiar with uh, the AACM outside of 
knowing about Roscoe Mitchell because one of my good friends studied with Roscoe at Mills. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, it was happenstance. I always say like the things that are meant to happen, the things that are meant for you will always come to you. So you don't need to feel bad if you get a rejection. So sometimes I just put things out there and see what comes back. And this was one of those things that came back unexpectedly, but has been a really profound experience for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wonder if the uh, existence of AACM, you know, I I think about the creative music part of of that title. Uh, What's the importance of the existence of an institution like that? Maybe even getting back to what you were talking about, uh, the importance of creativity and the ability for everyone to be creative. Well, I mean, the AACM is like an organization that one everyone should probably know about but um you know i'm from florida so i'm from the south um when i started doing experimental music in the community many 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 years ago there were only like three women doing like underground experimental and noise music in florida and um only two of us were people of color and you know the rest of that community is a very whitewashed homogenized male presenting community so to interact with a group of musicians that is the polar opposite of that that has perhaps even more skill than that you know such um is kind of mind-blowing and I say there were there were only a few moments in my life where I had this sort of reassurance that I was on the right path and that I was able to do this and that was one when my friend Nathan introduced me to the work of Pamela Z because before that I had not seen a person who looked like me doing things and that was their job and also Pamela will teach you that you will get all your coins because Pamela Z comes expensive or she doesn't come at all Mm -hmm. um so you know there's that and then I would say with the AACM you know and the Great Black Music Ensemble having them interface with my work in a workshop um, and then the two, three years of um, the piece coming into existence was another like affirmation of, oh, I can do these weird things and it can translate into spaces that I didn't necessarily expect. Are there expectations that you put on performers when it comes to these people realizing what you have created? No. Uh, When I work with performers, you know, I don't ever think that they're going to get the piece. And like by get the piece, I mean, get the, the ideas behind the piece for about two years. Mm. Um, 
because a lot of my work is very conceptual and I'm not seeking, I'm not interested in can the performers replicate a certain amount of notes in a given pattern with a, a certain amount of accuracy because that's what music essentially is mm. in a wider western tradition um it's guitar hero on a very high level sure. i know many people <laughs> are going to feel very bad about that but it's it's <laughs> that's basically what they're doing uh it's about accuracy and it's less about um the transformation that can happen in a moment given the set of circumstances, like the right set of circumstances. So I essentially create worlds in which performers can explore themselves and expression within those worlds. And I have ideas um, based on what I think can happen within that space. Um, but I'm, I don't ever hold on to those ideas. And so a lot of my work with performers is almost, it almost feels like therapy to them, <laughs> you know, and we're talking through specific things relevant to the performance, um, relevant to their practice. Um, and, and it's more like that than uh, here's notes, play them perfectly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're sending me back to the, the opening phrase of your bio is skewing the collection of traditional titles. So to that, based on what you've just said, is music one of those traditional titles, the word music, when we think about the experience of experiencing sound? Music in general, like everyone's like, what is music? I'm uh -huh. like, music <laughs> is humans attempt to control the natural world. That's what it is. The natural world is sound. There's sound everywhere that's not controlled by humans. But music is humans' attempt to control and curate that sound. Um, so for me, uh, I'm always like, I, I'm like, I feel like I'm constantly giving the sermon of a sound can be a sound. It doesn't have to just exist for humans, or. Um, everyone always wants to record everything but i'm like no there's something special about experiencing these sounds that you can't just hold and i was just saying yesterday um you can't protect a flower by crushing it in your hand i saw that on your feed yeah and even though you can rec we can record sound at like such a high fidelity almost no one just leaves that sound the way it is when they put it into their digital audio workstation. They manipulate it in some way. And in that manipulation, the sound that you were trying to protect by recording it, it becomes crushed and misshapen in some way, even if it's just slightly. Um, and there's just something about living your life and experiencing things freely without trying to clutch so hard to things that is, again, just deeply profound. It goes back to that enlightenment thing. 
in those moments, at least for me, I find that the world is more vivid than I could ever recreate. Um, even as a photographer or, or, you know, just life, if you let it, has really profound, beautiful experiences that aren't necessarily meant to be captured, but meant to be savored. Mm. And in one, I would also say, um, so this weekend I was uh, in Montreal and uh, my friend, uh, he wanted us to climb to the top of Montreal and I am from sea land, mm -hmm. <laughs> sea level, below mm -hmm. sea level <laughs> and also flat land. So for me, it takes, takes more time to go up the mountain and, uh, he matched my pace. Um, and there was something really profound about we're going very slowly together up this mountain. We're still going to get to the top of the mountain, but we're going to have all of these experiences and notice all of these extra things along the way because the moment of going in between is something that we lose in modern time. And I'm just gonna say it. So his name is Stanford. Um, and Stanford had recommended a book to me. It's called The Scent of Time. Hmm. And it talks about um, in ancient China, they used incense markers as time. And time had different smells to it. And that there is this moment between here and there that in modern time we don't experience a lot because you think about it you get in your car and you go from here to there but the sounds the smells the moments that between here and there um you miss all of that like when i go from my apartment to the harvard arboretum if I go by Uber, I miss the smell of like fresh fish being cooked in Upham's corner mm. or like as I go towards Jamaica Plain where the curry sort of spills out into the street and then you get the scent of the laundromat and then the popcorn as you go past the, uh, the zoo. And I feel that in a life where we're always, there's such a push for seeing everything and documenting the fact that you saw everything. We've lost the ability to slow down and be okay with like reading the book in the tea shop and that being the one thing that you did or the slow walk up the mountain and noticing 
the little things along the way, you still get to there. But your life feels more vivid, more profound, more meaningful, and like peacefully purposeful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, You've challenged uh, a question that I often have for people, you know, what are your future goals? What are you working toward? But maybe to what you're describing and putting an expectation on time is inappropriate, savoring, savoring the moment. I mean, is, is that the way you view your career moment, moment to moment, say savoring each one of them? Yes. Um, you know, I don't rest my laurels on any success, uh, any particular success. And I just, I'm constantly moving forward, but I think this is also very scary for people. I don't really make concrete plans Mm -hmm. (laughs) because, you know, when I was younger, I was like, I'm going to be a constitutional lawyer. I'm going to be married at 30 and I'm going to have kids by 35. That is not what happened in my life. Um, But the life that I've been given is so much more beautiful, profound, meaningful, deep and vibrant than I could have ever planned for myself. And so I definitely believe that we are guided by our ancestors, that they have, um, they are looking out for us. And if we are in tune with our energy and the energy of the world and all of that, the answers to where you should go next are in front of you. So yeah, I don't have concrete plans. I mean, I have things that obviously I'm booked out to like 2023 with some places um, in my schedule for like, if I should want to take more projects on. But yeah, I, I think that at least I hope that my life creates some sort of dialogue that there's another way to live and it's a fulfilling and rich way to live if you are open enough to unlearning. Remain Calm by the Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker. I'm, again, so honored to be able to uh, have uh, been able to have featured her here on Triloquy to to talk about you know so many things. It's it's great to connect with artists who even challenge my ideas of music and mm. sound and performance. It's a it's a wide broad world out there. One of the things I wanted to very quickly uh, bring to you and and get your ideas on. One of the things that I spoke with Elizabeth about was program notes and how a lot of artists like Elizabeth don't like to prescribe to folks what they're going to experience or try to, as you said, prime the pump, prime the pump. <laughs> yeah. um, and just let, you know, them have a, a, an organic experience to the performance. What do you think about that? Are, are you prepared as a radio host to tell audiences, you know what, 
I'm not going to tell you anything about this. Just listen to it and see what you think. There's a, a, jo the, a job, a joke that I'll throw out there every once in a while is this next piece needs no introduction. But if I said nothing, I would be out of a job. So, <laughs> sure. you know, and that's just when you hear something recognizable, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, was it just last opus that we were talking about different ways to refer to this music? Or was that two opuses ago? Maybe. Yeah, I'm not remembering. New right Renaissance artist is a contender. I, sure, I, sure. I, I like the way I mean, she and, and that's that's what she is. You know, do not call her a composer, right? Because that's not what she is. No, that's you know? a that's a contender. That's more encompassing than a lot of the other terms that were thrown out. Well, somebody's going to owe her a check if they start using that yeah. phrase as well, I believe. So okay. <laughs> again, you heard huge shout out and thank you to the Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker. All right, well, uh, spoiler alert, Scott and I are going to spend the triloquy talking a little bit about uh, The Matrix 4 and connecting that to mm -hmm. the arts uh, as we wrap up uh, 2021's triloquy. So to get us there, um, we're going to uh, listen to a piece of music that I learned from watching the first Matrix. Of course, it was out there, uh, Rage Against the Machines, Wake Up. Well, there's a an ensemble that you put me on to called Brass Against. Brass we're, Against. Where we're going to listen to a, a little bit of, of their uh, rendition of this featuring Sophia Eurista. Brass Against this take on Wake Up by Rage Against the Machines. Orchestral instruments. I see a singer. I see percussion. I guess I see classical music. But anyway, <laughs> let's not have that conversation about this of that piece of music specifically. Because uh, I, I, I said I promised I was trying to get us out of here in other than two hours. We're going to be maybe a couple seconds over. But <laughs> I just wanted to give some room to this film because the concepts behind it have really been. Uh, you know, played an integral role in so much of my work ever since I was at the drive-in theater to see the first one, you mm. know, over mm -hmm. 20 years ago. I've been in love with the concepts and the and the universe in general that was created uh, through those films. So there's no way for me to shit on The Matrix 4. I've seen a lot of people giving their opinions, but um, what are what are some, you know, notable things that, you know, you appreciated or maybe didn't love from the film? Um, I know that a lot of people have been saying that Keanu can't act. I think this is some of the best acting that he's done. Yeah, me too. Him with the analyst saying, you know, I am either uh, trapped in this computer uh, game of my own devising or I'm crazy. You mm -hmm. know, essentially this this wrestling match. And I believed him totally. Sure. All throughout it. And um I don't know. I think the first and the last ones are the best. Yeah. The yeah. first and last films. Yeah. I mean, nothing can really match for me. Nothing can match that first one no. because that was incredible. But, you know, seeing um, the power dynamics tied to gender sort of flipped and reimagined was really important to me. You know, shout out to Carrie Ann Moss looking great, you know, looking better than I'm 
probably will be when right. <laughs> when I'm her age, you know, in shape. And then, you know, she's the one that uh, flies. Exactly. She's the one, you know, exactly. so, I, so I love that. But, you know, in connecting this, and we can talk about this for hours, but, you know, in connecting this with the arts, there's, you know, some things that I wanted to uh, bring up and, and kind of, you know, unpack just for a little bit or, or at least highlight. So when we talk about the power of influence and how uh, Keanu Reeves's character created, you know, unconsciously this sort of new Morpheus, I was all over social media saying before I even watch this, y'all need to put some respect on Lawrence Fishburne's name. 100%. You know, because he is a legend in in his own right, you know, but adding this movie onto his resume, you know, incredible. Now, with all of that being said, you know, the idea that Morpheus had such an impact on Neo that he inadvertently, you know, wrote some of them into this video game and then he manifested, y'all can watch the movie. I think that says a lot about what influence can do and the power and the responsibility behind influence, the way arts institutions can influence the minds of young people, even grown people as radio hosts, podcasters, presenters, whatever, how we can influence people's minds. What if something we say can get so deeply embedded that it is the snowball that turns into the the giant thing mm -hmm. that changes systems? Yeah. You know, that's, that's what I think about when I, you know, an example of what I think about when I think about how these movies have have been so impactful uh, to me and how you know I, I enjoyed this last one I think about the idea of taking real risks it was really cool to see uh, J.D. Pika Smith you know uh, and I saw the the Instagram post of her getting in all the makeup you mm -hmm. know to be oh you know five I think she said five hours worth of makeup so it, it right. was it was fun uh, seeing her there but the conversation of taking real risks versus being afraid to take risks and, you know, how, um, you know, things are worth, you know, initiatives are worth different things to different people. So again, Neo going out to save Trinity was something that wasn't something that would be nice to happen. That had to happen. You know, there was determination behind that. You know, while you have folks like J.D. Pickett Smith, understanding that that would be nice, it would really be cool to have Trinity back, but I don't know if it's worth risking our safety or our community or, or da, da da blah, blah, blah. That's how I see a lot of the work in these arts institutions. Unfortunately, I see a lot of folks in positions of power for whom change, diversity, equity would be something nice to have, something nice to see, but something that isn't required really for my own well-being. And there are so many folks like me for whom that is required. We, we're either going to see the change or work tirelessly toward it. And, you know, that concept as it was presented in the movie is one that I think we can think about as artists, folks working in the arts field, what is really required of us and what risks are we willing to willing to take? How far are we willing to go toward these things that we at least allege would be nice to see? All right, I'm gonna take it back. So you know that there's a theory that Star Wars wouldn't have happened the way that it did if in the first movie, if that gunner didn't take out the little pod with C-3PO and okay. R2-D2 in it, it would, you know, if he would have shot it, then movie's over. Okay, so if Bugs didn't go and get in some good trouble, would have would we even have found out that it's Trinity that flies? And would we even uh, go I'm, ahead? I'm, go no go no. Would would we even have gotten? We we wouldn't have gotten out of the loops, the modals that we are in, uh, without her going and getting Neo in the first place, abandoning protocol, 
How many times Ooh. did they say that the general, how many said that this is against the general's protocol? When you break rules sometimes, sometimes is what has to be done, you know? That's what I remember. And it's not us even asking our allies and so-called accomplices to jump over buildings and dodge bullets and traverse down whatever they do, flipping around and carrying on. Hardcore. In the, you know, <laughs> we're not even asking for all of that. Mm. You know, we're just asking for the considerations of certain musical aesthetics and musical experiences into these spaces. I mean, I'm so glad you you bring that up because that's that's such an important point. But again, for me, what the biggest one is that exists not only in this fourth matrix, but across the universe that I always apply to the arts and to my work is this idea of causality. I love that scene in the second uh, movie with the Merovingian and and all of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, all of those things where he's uh, explaining it. No action. And, and you know, th this is uh, uh, deep in Nietzsche and Buddhism. I mean, and just in the natural world, there isn't an, an action that goes without a reaction. So think about the actions that we're taking. We we exist in the world. We exist in these arts ecosystems. We can't not do anything. So everything that we do is going to have an impact or an effect down the road. Are we solidifying structures or are we challenging them and breaking them down? Are we making the road harder for um, diverse thought and diverse experience in the field, in the way that we work and the way that we operate in it? Or are we paving the way for something new. There is no in-between. And I think if we can all just center our thoughts and our minds, maybe even our lives behind the idea of causality, the idea of cause and effect, again, the mystic law as it's um, defined um, by uh, Buddhists, by Nietzsche and Buddhists, we could really change the world. We have the opportunity, we have the tools to set ourselves free, but as is apparent in the matrix universe and in the arts, there are so many people who just don't want to mm. be free. The folks who don't want to be unplugged, folks who are afraid of what a different reality looks like. Yeah. But what if we shed ourselves of that fear? What if we offer forgiveness and redemption for those who can give us the room to uh, to uh, to to shed ourselves of that fear. There's so much there and so many opportunities. And honestly, I'm excited about what's possible because as we continue to to uh, talk here and and connect outside conversations and outside pieces of arts and media like the matrix to what we do in Western classical music, so-called classical music. There's so many things that can be normalized and so much change that can happen. I'm going to, I can't wait to go back and, and watch the film again, just to make sure that, you know, there are other connections mm. that, that, that I can make any um final thoughts or, or any wishes to everyone as we say goodbye to 2021. Thanks a lot for listening. Uh, tell your friends about the podcast. That's a way that you can help it grow. Uh, let your guard down sometimes. Let people in. And I'm here if you need me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as for me, again, yes, thank you so much. It's, I, I'm excited. I'm honored. And I'm grateful to each and every one of you. Let's let's continue. You know, as they say in the Matrix, the path of the one is made by the many. You know, sometimes I feel like the one whose path is being made. Other times I feel like the many helping to make the path for others, especially when we talk about the folks we feature on this podcast and just trying to put folks on y'all's radar. Look, we can do this. Let's build the solidarity to flip all this shit over. Happy New Year, everyone. I'll see y'all in 2022. <laughs>